morning. We are going to do things a little out of the ordinary in that we generally pray to begin our Sunday school hour. However, today uh, we're going to delay that prayer for just a couple of minutes as we introduce uh, the topic for this morning, and then we'll pray at what I think is just a little bit more appropriate of a time. So as we start, we'll kind of begin with an illustration that I hope encapsulates what we'll be learning about in first through third John. To be honest, I am not optimistic that we will even touch second and third John. I know we didn't even look at Jude last week. I apologize. I just have so much content for first John. But here's the illustration. I want you to pretend with me this morning that you work for an auction house. Uh, this is a world-renowned auction house that sells high-profile items uh, to wealthy people around the world. Millions of dollars worth of goods and inventory pass through your auction house to people with more money than they know what to spend as they're purchasing these goods. And you, specifically at this auction house, are someone who authenticates or validates the goods that people want to sell through your auction house. They have something, hey, can you sell this for me? Sure, let me validate it. Let me authenticate what it is that you're trying to sell. So imagine with me, you are one of these people, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, I was digging through my garage and found the hatchet that George Washington used to chop down the cherry tree. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, that story is of questionable origin anyway, right? If you know anything about history, that was probably made up just to demonstrate that George Washington was this really honest stand-up guy. But you decide to humor this person. You say, okay, you know, show me the hatchet. And he whips out this brand new chainsaw <laughs> with this signature on it. How long does it take you to discern whether or not this is the hatchet that George Washington used? Like, a second. You know right away, it's a fake. How about this? A week later, same person gives you a call on the phone. Hey, you'll never believe it. I found what I believe to be the original Mona Lisa in my attic. You've already, you've already been burned by this person once before. You're like, I'm really suspicious as to whether or not they have something this valuable in their attic. But you decide to humor them anyway, and they come on over to your office, they unfold this piece of paper out of their backpack, and here's the picture they show you that is the original Mona Lisa. <laughs> Again, what do you think? Real deal? No way. You've seen the original. You know that's not it. How about this? Another person, totally different entirely, comes to you. Hey, I've got this diamond ring. Can you sell this through your auction house? Here's the ring. You think to yourself, whoa, that's a pretty sharp looking piece of jewelry, but do you just take their word for it and say, okay, I'll sell it for you? No. What did people generally do with particularly diamonds? They authenticate them, right? We know there's a whole market for, I believe it's called cubic zirconas these fake diamonds. You don't just take everything and resell it under someone's word 
that this is a real diamond. All right, I say all of these examples somewhat humorously to demonstrate to you that in real life, there are tests that we run to authenticate claims that people make. Sometimes it's as simple as the eye test. You guys all laughed when you saw the Mona Lisa drawing because you knew you'd seen the original. That's, that's not it. Sometimes, you know, you actually have to um, run scientific tests to discern if something is real or fake. People can make all sorts of claims, but we run tests so that we know with certainty that what people are telling us is, in fact, genuine. This isn't just something that we do in real life, though. This is something that the scriptures put forward. There are spiritual tests like this by which we can put things to the test and discern, hey, is this real or not? So, for example, in the book of James, James says, hey, you think you're a wise person? Okay, well, don't just tell me that you're wise because if you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, you're a liar. You're not a wise person. In fact, a person who has those things in their hearts actually has wisdom that, is, that finds its origin in uh, worldliness and demonic. I mean, you share something in common with demons. If you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, James says, you're not a wise person. One chapter prior to this, James says, you have faith. Don't just talk to me about it. A lot of people make these claims that they have faith. James says demons can affirm that God is one. If you're going to make a claim that you have faith, prove it. Show me by your works, not just by what you're saying. This isn't original to James, though. Jesus has these sorts of tests as well. Uh, the one that I know of for sure is this. He says, hey, there are going to be false teachers who try and infiltrate the church. Be alert. Be on the lookout for these kinds of people. How do you discern who's a false teacher? Jesus says it's pretty easy. Bad trees do not produce good fruit. If you see an apple tree, we have one in the front yard here, that produces all of these shriveled up, sorry-looking apples, you don't need to have a degree in farming to know that something's wrong with the tree. Jesus says, bad trees do not produce good fruit. Peter, just a couple of weeks ago, was talking about these false teachers and the kind of fruit they produce. Here's how he describes it. They deny the master who bought them. They have eyes full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. Their hearts are trained in greed despise authority. They scoff at the notion that Jesus will return, and so they follow their own sinful desires. And so even though these false teachers might infiltrate the church, it shouldn't be that hard to spot them. Look for people who are following their own adulterous desires. Look for people who are greedy. Look for people who scoff at Jesus' return. There should be like a neon sign pointing at them, false teacher. You'll know them by their fruits. I say all of this this morning because if you did the reading this week from 1st to 3rd John, you know that these books are full of these sorts of tests. So we begin in chapter 1 with the first question that actually requires us to go to chapter 5, where John gives us kind of a summary statement of why he wrote this book. 
So you tell me in your own words, according to 1 John 5, 13, why did John write this epistle? Craig. You nailed it. Yes. John writes this book so that you would know with certainty that your faith is genuine, that you are, in fact, born again, that you are a child of God. And with that, I just want to pause and address the reality that there are times in our lives where we are not confident in our standing before God. Right? This is commonly called doubting the assurance of our salvation. As I was uh, kind of studying out this week, it seems like this is a pretty uh, common phenomenon that happens amongst people who are in Christianity. Uh, maybe a lot of you could be transparent this morning and say, yeah, I have struggled with the assurance of my own salvation. Uh, one article I read said that if you looked at Christian history from past to present, this is a common theme. People have doubts. Some of you know all too well that these doubts about our standing before God can be crippling. They just incite fear and dread in your hearts. Maybe you know some of these experiences. You find yourself praying over and over and over that Jesus will save you, hoping that one of those works or catches and takes hold. Maybe you engage in spiritual conversations and you feel like a fraud for even talking about spiritual things because in your hearts you're like, I'm not even sure that I have accomplished square one of Christianity. Maybe you think about death and really, it's kind of a 50-50 as to where you'll wake up when you die. Because you just don't possess that confidence, that assurance that you are a child of God. You wonder to yourself, in the quietness of your hearts, if you're ever going to accomplish anything of spiritual significance or value, because you don't even have the confidence of your faith buttoned down. Perhaps you even dread a Sunday school like this, because you know, we're going to pull out the sheet and look at the tests. And our hearts are just going to be matched up against what the Bible has to say. And you wonder to yourself, am I going to pass? What's this going to say about me? These examples that I listed are not all that hypothetical. If I could be transparent with you this morning, it's because I know what this is like. I've had these questions just this week as it is my job to prepare to teach about 1 John and these tests of faith, I'm taking my life and matching it up against these tests. And I'm feeling some of the angst. I'm feeling some of this pressure on my life. How does my life match up according to what John is saying here? I'm a person who overanalyzes things. My personality is such that I have to just like, no. You know, part of what bothers me about John is that I want like a percentage. Like, John, if I'm 63% worldly, does that mean I'm an unbeliever and I can somehow match that up against my life? John doesn't do that for us. 
but he does write a whole book so that we can know that we have eternal life. If any of what I said resonates with you and you are sitting here thinking, yeah, that's me too, take heart. John is written to help us. So, so I do want to make just a couple of clarifying comments here. We just read 1 John 5.13. Let me read it for you again. I keep alluding to it. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John writes this book not so that we leave in 45 minutes doubting, I don't know. He writes this book so that we know. The language of this book is so tender. If you read it this week, over and over and over again, John is calling these people his little children. He's calling them his beloved. He wants these people not to doubt. This isn't a game of spiritual whack-a-mole where every time you think, I have evidence of faith, John says, no, you don't. No, you don't. I'm hitting you back down. This is meant to encourage, to strengthen you, to help you just take an honest look at your life and say, yeah, I do evidence the things that John is talking about. In the same breath, I will say this. John does not shy away from calling people liars. If you read this week, you know that that language is throughout the book. He says, more than once, you can make these claims, but if these things are not true of you, you're a liar. So this isn't going to be just a fluffy little message for us, and we all pat ourselves on the back and say, okay, I'm good. No, I would just encourage you this morning, take a serious evaluation of your own spiritual pulse and see if there's life. See if there really has been new birth. Perhaps there's some discomfort, like I felt this week. I'll be totally transparent. I was uncomfortable just looking at some of these things. If you feel discomfort, the worst thing you can do is to leave here and do nothing about it. John writes so that we can know, and so perhaps what needs to happen is you leave this morning saying, you know what? I am a follower of Jesus, but this text has revealed some serious sin in my life. It has revealed some serious shortcoming, a deficiency. I look too much like the world. I don't love people enough. Lord, change me. If that were a product of this morning's lesson, that'd be a huge win. Perhaps some of you need to evaluate if there's even real faith at all, though. I don't want to take that for granted. So, with that, we transition to these first set of questions, and it's here that I really want to stop and just pray and ask the Lord to give us some honesty and humility as we think about these tests of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, this is a topic that can make a lot of people, myself included, just uncomfortable. We have to be honest with ourselves. Take a look at our life. See if there's a heartbeat, a pulse, a new birth. I pray that as we just examine your word, it would be your word that is putting these tests forward, that we're not looking to um, these extra-biblical things to find false assurance, but really that it would be like a dagger that pierces through maybe even self-deception, and we just are able to see, yeah, 
I am a believer, as evidenced by the fruits of my life, or, man, I really am not trusting in Jesus Christ, and that has been revealed to me because none of these things are true of me. I pray, Lord, for wisdom in this, humility, clarity, even on this somewhat mysterious and um, angst-producing topic, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, the second question on your screen there, we're in chapter one, and right out of the gate, there are three tests or evidences that help us to know if we possess new life. So according to verse six, who would like to raise their hand and just kind of summarize the test that John is putting forward there? Diane. Yeah, if we walk in sin continually, verse 6 says this, if we have fellowship with him if, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth if we say we have fellowship with him. Here John is identifying a group of people who would all raise their hands and say, yes, I am a Christian, but John isn't content to just let you make a claim. He says, let's look at your life. How are you walking, in darkness or light? And if their life is perpetually walking in darkness, John says, you're a liar. You don't know God. There's no new birth in you. The implication being that someone who knows God, who has been born again, walks in the light according to the truth. We're going to elaborate on this as the tests continue to come. But what kind of actions, I ask this question, what kind of actions should we be looking for? Let's state it positively. People who walk in the light, they are producing these fruits, I should say, these actions. What would that look like? Well, I didn't think there was any better place to go to than what we call the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I think sometimes we're so familiar with this text of Scripture that we actually forget what it's describing to us. It is the fruits or evidences that should be true of people that have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. This isn't something that you have to necessarily treat as a check sheet and say, well, I have to do this today, I have to be joyful today. No, this should be something that is already true of you because the Spirit of God is inside of you and is producing those fruits. So, those fruits of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are a part of believers. It is evidence that the Holy Spirit is inside of them producing these things. I want us to just take one of those fruits and stack it up against our lives, particularly in the arena of self-control. And this isn't uh, something that I've come up with. This is what James is actually going to draw out about self-control. He says that a person who does not bridle his tongue actually is revealing that his religion is worthless. So let's think about it this morning. Do you bridle your tongue? Are there times in your life when people say things to you And you immediately, in your mind, are able to produce a sarcastic remark, some snarky comment, and you think to yourself, no way, I can't say that. That's not Christ-like. Are there times when you're tempted to send a text 
or an email that is passive-aggressive, that asserts your dominance or superiority to people, and you've even got it typed out, and then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God inside of you says, you can't send that. That is not Christ-like. There's nothing loving about what you're about to say, even through a a medium such as text or email. If you have bridled your tongue, you are evidencing self-control. Take heart. John says, you have evidence of new life. The Spirit of God is at work inside of you. Now, that's just one example. You could do that with the rest. But are you even seeing glimpses of the Holy Spirit producing patience, producing a peace in your heart, producing joy of knowing Jesus? If so, John says, hey, you're walking in the light. Now, perhaps, like me, you look at this list, and you're kind of a glass-half-empty person, and you see only failure when looking at the fruits of the Spirit, and your mind bring, and, your, and, and you bring to mind all of the ways in which you don't evidence these, and you think about producing the fruits of the Spirit, and you are like, this is an absolute battle for me to try and produce these things. What are you supposed to do with thoughts like that? Well, Galatians and Paul actually say that's pretty normal to struggle with producing these fruits of the Spirit because just prior to these fruits of the Spirit, there are the fruits of the flesh. And even before that, Paul says that the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other. They're at war. This is spiritual warfare. Peter describes the Christian life as the flesh waging war against our soul. And so if you feel even a battle within you, war in producing these fruits, I would say that's a pretty normal Christian experience. However, if you're someone who, as Ephesians says, just walks in the passions of your flesh, feels no tension or remorse, lives like the Gentiles, doing whatever they want, John would say, even no struggle, that's cause for concern. But I think that fight, Scripture speaks in terms of spiritual battle. The Holy Spirit of God is fighting our flesh, keeping us from doing the things we want to do. I think even that would be evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you trying to produce these things. Sin is a part of every person's life, but a believer through the Holy Spirit is taking steps to walk in light and produce the fruit that accompanies true faith. Let's move on now to verse 8. There's another test presented for us there. What is that one, Brenda? Yeah, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. How about verse 10? We'll kind of pair these together. Who would like to give the test from verse 10? Again, Brenda, just go ahead and say it. Yeah, if we say we have not sinned. So from verse 8 and 10, conclude that a genuine believer actually admits that he is a sinner. Does that seem a little bit strange to you? A genuine believer admits that he's a sinner? I think sometimes we only conclude that a person who is um, a believer is working towards sinlessness. John says a believer actually admits, hey, I'll raise my hand. I'm a sinner. Now, perhaps Uh, You know, even the thought of someone saying they have never sinned is a little foreign to us. 
right? I mean, we're so immersed in Christian culture. We're talking about sin every week. So for someone to actually have the audacity to say, I've never sinned, uh, is that really realistic? Well, could I posit this? That when people say things like, I'm a pretty good person, or when they say things like, well, there are certainly people who are worse than me, that in essence, they are communicating, they don't think they're a sinner. They think they are pretty good. And it's subtle, but do you see what's going on here? These people are making the assumption that if life is a scale, that they kind of trend toward the good side of things. That if at the end of life they stand before God and all their good works are put on this, you know, giant scale, their good works will outweigh their bad. And here's the problem with that sort of thinking. Verse 10 says that people who say they have not sinned actually are calling God a liar. Because the whole of scriptures from Adam onward is saying every human person is a sinner. So if you have the audacity to say, well, I'm not one of them, then you're making God out to be a liar. But even more, or should I say another component of this, is this. What need does a good person have for a savior? Why would someone who thinks they're pretty good think that they need to be rescued? They don't. They've totally ignored or rejected their need for Jesus. And as such, John is saying, well, people who say they've never sinned, they are not born again. But people who admit, yeah, I'm a sinner, that is evidence that they know Christ. Can I just remind you that the Apostle Paul says in Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost? Paul gives us a shining example of someone who says, I'm the foremost of sinners. David in Psalm 51 cries out to God saying, cleanse me from my iniquities, purge me, Lord. I'm so sinful. Do you, like Paul and David, admit, I am a sinner. I am wicked through and through, and my admission of sin drives me to Jesus Christ. Because I need a righteousness that is not my own. If that's you, take heart. That's sign of new life. Perhaps, even as I talk about admitting your own sinfulness, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, that is no problem for me to admit that I'm a sinner. In fact, I feel like I'm sinning all the time. I'm weary of picking up the sword and fighting. I fail more than I care to admit. Every day I'm waking up, bombarded by temptation, struggling. What hope do you have? We'll look at verse 9 in particular. What hope is there for a person who says, I'm no stranger to sin? and to the battle that the scriptures describe. I feel overwhelmed by it. Is there any hope for that person? Cynthia? Yes. 
Yes, that if you are consciously aware of your sin like this and you confess those sins, God is faithful and just to forgive those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How awesome is that? Notice the character of God here. He's faithful. He's just. You say, are those important? Totally. God's justice is one of the overarching themes of the Old Testament. You can't read it and come to any other conclusion than that God is just. It begins in the garden. We know you sin, there is a consequence. Adam and Eve, sin, consequence. The flood was a result of all of the rampant sin on earth. Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Israel and Judah being hauled into captivity. You should leave with no other conclusion than that God is just. He always punishes wickedness. It was pretty nice of God to make a provision in the Old Testament that death could atone for sins. However, as Hebrews reminds us, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That really didn't work because people kept sinning and bulls and goats can't forgive sins. And so God in his goodness sent Christ to be that perfect, spotless lamb. His once-for-all sacrifice cleanses people from their sins so that when you confess to God and say, Lord, I've done it again, forgive me. God doesn't have to pull out the calculator and do the math and say, well, let me check. No, the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to cleanse us from every sin. He's faithful to do so. He doesn't say, Well, this is the third time this week that you've done this. He's faithful to forgive and to cleanse us. The blood of Jesus is sufficient for all of our sins. We got more of these tests. They're all over the place in John. Here we are in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. What is the first test that becomes apparent to us there? John. Yeah, it really is pretty easy. If you want to know if you have truly been born again, just look at your life and say, are you keeping the commandments of Jesus? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. A little bit later in verse 6, it says this, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. A true follower of Jesus follows his commandments, patterns his life after the way in which Jesus lived on earth. And so we've encountered this already with the walking in darkness versus walking in light, but I want to phrase it positively and ask you this. Do you keep the commands of Jesus? Certainly, I want to admit at the outset, we all fail at this. Sin is still a very present reality in our lives. We've already said today, the flesh and the spirit are warring against each other. Paul cries out in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? We know what it is for believers to struggle and not do the things that they know they should. But are there times when you are tempted to do something? Let's say you're tempted to provoke someone. You want to get under their skin and rile them up a little bit. You want to belittle somebody else. And you think to yourself, Jesus wouldn't do this. I can't even think of a verse necessarily, but I know this is not Christ-like. 
And so I'm going to choose to follow Jesus and his commands. I'm going to choose to pattern my life after his. I see his compassion. I see the way that he ministers to the least in society. I see the way that he sacrificially gave of himself. I'm doing it too. I want to be like Jesus. If you follow the commands of Jesus, again, not perfectly, but if there's something in you that wants to be like Christ, take heart. There's evidence of new life in you. How about this? Verses 9 to 11. What test becomes apparent to us there? Brenda? We love our brother. Yeah, verse 9 captures this really well when it says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, a true follower of Jesus loves his brother. I looked at it this week. Scholars seem to think that the word brother here, you know, it could perhaps refer to blood relation, but they think this is talking about our relationship to Christians. And so the question is this, do you love other Christians? Now, I have to be honest and admit that this one maybe caused me the most angst this week when I stacked my life up against it. Because my heart and my mind are quick to come up with examples in which I've been unkind to other believers, in which I have been irritated by other believers, by which I have like a perpetual annoyance towards some believers, and the Spirit of God is inside of me thinking, what does this indicate? What does this mean? And in thinking through some of these things, I wanted to make a couple clarifying comments for you that I hope are helpful if you find yourself in the same boat as me. I think part of the reason that I was feeling this angst is that I was confusing emotions with actual biblical love. Now, I don't want to say that emotions are not a part of this at all. Certainly, we are family with brothers and sisters in Christ. There should be an affection for them. There should be a familial bond at times that causes our hearts to well up with warm and fuzzy feelings towards one another. However, if that is the only way which I discern my love for other people is having these feelings, then when I don't have them, that's going to cause some real angst in my heart, isn't it? Because I'm going to think to myself, well, I don't feel like walking in and giving you guys all a hug and a kiss today. Does that mean I don't love you? Something that was really helpful for me to consider is that when Jesus talks about loving one another, he doesn't speak of it in terms in which we just have to sit there and wait for this wave of emotions to wash over us. He says, a new command I'm giving to you, love one another. John reiterates in this epistle that it is a command to love other people. So thus, this helps me think about this a little bit better. If loving is a command, it's not a feeling, but a choice that we make to love other Christians, to love other believers. And so what does that look like? If love is a choice, then what does that mean for us to speak about love in more concrete terms than just a fondness or an affection for other people. Well, let's look no further than the example of Christ. Ephesians 5 has the answer to that question. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So if we love other people like Christ loved us, it's going to result in us taking actions that are sacrificial to ourselves for the good of other people. 
Do you sacrifice for other Christians? Is that a decision that you make? Perhaps a great place to consider what actions accompany love is 1 Corinthians 13, where we read a whole list that love is not a feeling at all. It's actually choosing to do all these things. Love is patient. Love does not envy or boast. It's kind. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so we come to the evaluation of whether or not we love other Christians. And we have to ask ourselves this, in your relationship with other Christians, do you show deference? Do you put other Christians first? Do you consider their needs as more important than yours? Do you seek glory or do you let other people have it? Do you sacrifice your desires, your needs for the good of others? Is that evidenced by the fact that you give materially, either of your time or money or energy to other believers? John, we're not going to get there today, no way. But John later, uh, maybe in chapter 3, says this, If you have the world's goods and see your brother in need and close your heart against them, how can the love of God abide in you? Do you see other believers with needs and say, What can I do? sacrificially to meet those needs. If so, take heart. There is life in you. Be encouraged. This is the mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ, someone who just doesn't have affection and warm and fuzzy feelings, but makes intentional decisions to love even the prickliest people. I'll be honest. There are Christians who annoy me, who get under my skin. Sin is always going to be present in our relationships. There's always pride. There's always sin. There's always these things that are going to put barriers between how we interact with other Christians. But are you going to overcome those barriers by choosing to forgive, by choosing to love, by choosing to be peaceful with them when everything else inside of you screams, I want a rivalry. I want to hold bitterness and a grudge against you. And you say, no way. I'm going to choose to love you. That is evidence of a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you see your lack of love and cry out to God and say, Lord, this is a weakness in my life. Help me to love other people like you first loved me. Verse 15. What is the test there? Jeff. Do not love the world. Now, when John talks about the world here, he's not talking about like, Don't love going to the White Mountains and enjoying creation. He's talking about loving the ungodly culture and philosophy and values of our present age. Do you love the world? Verse 16 clarifies or elaborates on the evil components of the world. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's the person who wants something in the world and tries to get it. They see something. They have to have it. Their whole life is spent consumed in the world. They want other people to look at them and say, wow, you've arrived, you've achieved these things. Your life is tied so closely to the world that your happiness rises and falls on it. If that's you, man, John says, take a close look. You can't love the world and God at the same time. James says the world and God are enemies. I think about people who loved the world in Scripture. Uh, Demas came to mind, one of Paul's associates. Paul actually says that Demas forsook him and left because he loved the present world. 
I think about the rich young ruler who presented with opportunity for eternal life, comes to Jesus, says, what do I have to do? Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor, and that was too big of a barrier for him to overcome because he loved his goods too much. Are you the person who would say, given the choice between following Jesus or loving the world, I just love the world too much. I'd have to go with that. John says, check your temperature, see if there's life. But, in contrast, are you the person who's come to realize the lie that the world is selling? You walk through the mall, you see the emptiness of people's lives, you turn on the TV, you know this is a sham. Can you look back over the course of, say, five years of your life and just honestly say, I've become less like the world? For me, you know, maybe five years is a little too short, but if I look back even, you know, 10 years from now, let's say, I I, I was talking in a way that makes me cringe right now. Uh, I was listening to music that horrifies me to think that I, why would I ever listen to that? You know, are, are you the person who can engage your coworkers in all of the, like, trendy TV shows that are just full of rampant ungodliness? You've seen all the latest movies and content because you were that immersed in the world, or are you distancing yourself from it? Are you pulling further and further away, and you feel like you can't talk to hardly any unbeliever because you don't know what they're talking about? I'm not saying you're doing this perfectly. Certainly none of us are monks who live in some cave somewhere that never engage with the world. We understand sometimes it gets its hooks in us, and we find ourselves being, you know, seduced by the American dream or by popular music, or ungodly entertainment, but in our heart of hearts, we know this doesn't satisfy. I don't belong here. I'm living for another country. I'm in exile in this life. Lord, forgive me for the worldliness that does exist in my heart. If that's you, take heart. That's evidence of new life. We're not even going to be able to cover all of these. I'm not quite sure how to wrap this up, to be honest. Um, There is another component of these in which a person who knows Jesus truly just affirms right doctrine about him. They They are willing and believe that Jesus is God. You say, is that really that hard? There's a ton of cults today that deny that Jesus is God. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Muslims, they all say, "Mm, Jesus was a really nice man or a prophet, son of God. No way. Use that as a litmus test to discern if the person who's knocking at your door actually is a true follower of Jesus or not. They admit that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to close then with the illustration here that I totally fabricated, um, (laughs) but I want you guys to just think about it. Let's pretend you are about to go skydiving. I know that sounds terrifying. Maybe even worse than jumping out of a plane is the fact that you are like chained to someone for the entirety of a flight of a plane up to altitude. That, that creeps me out, to be honest. I don't want to be in that close of proximity to the instructor for that long. But rather than you know, just sit there awkwardly, you try to break the ice and come to find out the guy that you're strapped to is like the most worldly person you've ever met. They spend their weekends going to Vegas and gambling and engaging in all of this sinful activity, sexual pleasures, parties, you name it. This is the life they live. And you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, 
But right before you guys hop out of the plane, he, you know, says into your ear, well, if the parachute doesn't open, at least I'm a Christian. According to the tests that John puts forward, do we have any confidence that this person is a believer? No way. It should be obvious to us, followers of Jesus, yeah, we stumble. We fall all the time. Sin is a part of our life. But at the end of the day, as Pastor John just helped me think about it this week, what John is doing here is he's giving us not a pass or fail, either you answer all the questions right or you don't. This is a trajectory of life. Is the trajectory of your life such that you love Jesus and follow his commands? That you love other Christians at cost to yourself? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Hey, I fail all the time. But our focus has to be on Jesus. I do want to read this because I thought it was just, uh, it kind of described my experience, to be honest. I'm sorry, I know we're a little late, but I just want to read this. I think Kevin DeYoung said this. He said, like a medieval inquisitor, someone who tortured people, we lay our souls upon the rack and inflict torture with constant accusatory questions. Do I bear enough of the fruit of the Spirit? Is my faith solid enough? Have I confessed and repented sufficiently? Have I tricked myself into thinking I am a believer? Do those questions ring true in your heart? Have you thought those things? Kevin says this, All the while, we forget to look to our Savior in faith. The great shepherd's promise, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That promise seems foreign to too many of his sheep. So let me encourage you, rather than just torturing yourself with these questions, as I am prone to do, to look to Christ and to just believe the word. Either the Bible's true or it's not. Either Jesus cleanses you of your sins or he doesn't. You say, I don't feel like it. The Bible never says you're going to feel like it. There's going to be evidences of it. You're going to be able to check your pulse and say, I do have a heartbeat. But when you're tempted to just be overwhelmed or in despair at these things, look to Christ. He is faithful and mighty to save you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and the confidence we can have in knowing Jesus Christ. If salvation was of our own strength, we'd be in trouble. So we looked at Jesus, sometimes crying out, Lord, help my unbelief. And we just trust that he is God, that he has forgiven us, that his blood is sufficient to wash away all of our sins. Help us, Lord, to increase in our love for him and our love for others and to be recommitting our lives to obeying your commandments, to pulling ourselves out of the world and saying, no, I am one of Jesus' children. I follow him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.